BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello, you are listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Uh, this is another episode in the letter D. Uh, and on this episode, D is uh, for a number of different topics, including... Two uh, iconic female Bond stars, a James Bond producer, a stunt coordinator on the James Bond films, and also one of James Bond's most memorable allies. My name is Tom Butler, as always, and joining me on this mission in the letter D today, having been rescued from a cable car accident in Rio de Janeiro, is Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello, you're welcome. (laughs) And dialing in from the Bahamas aboard the boat, the Disco Volavant, is Mr. Tom Wheatley. Oh, very clever. Very clever. Um, hello there. Hello. If you haven't listened to the James Bond Aid Z podcast before, then welcome. If you've listened um, before, obviously, welcome back. Uh, each episode, we cover a number of different topics. There's six topics this week. Uh, we'll each do a couple apiece. And to kick things off, I will begin. D is for Dolly. Dolly is the love interest of the uh, henchman Jaws in 1979's Moonraker. And Dolly was played by French actor Blan- Blanche Ravalec. Ravalec? Blanche Ravalec. Blanche. Yeah. That's better, isn't it? So um, as you will uh, all remember, she comes into the story uh, during the Rio de Janeiro section when Jaws is pursuing Roger Moore's James Bond and Lois Charles' Dr. Gully, Holly Goodhead in the cable car action sequence. And as that sort of comes to an end, the cable car crashes into the terminal and Dolly appears and she helps Richard Keel's jaws to lift a cable wheel off his head. And when she does that, they play Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet overture in the background, hinting at sort of a romance between the two. 
quite an interesting character, this one, I think. Um, lots to talk about. The cable car sequence that uh, you see in Moonraker had been an idea that they were going to use for Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't used for that. So it was, as with a lot of the James Bond films, it was saved up because it was too good to not use. So, uh, later on, uh, in Moonraker, they travel, she travels into space with Jaws aboard Drax's shuttle. Um, and then obviously when they hear Drax's plan to create a master race and, and get rid of the people who failed to meet his ideals of physical perfection, Jaws and Dolly defect and begin to help 007. And then as the station is beginning to disintegrate in space, Dolly and Jaws have a um, bottle of uh, champagne together and they help Bond and Holly escape the Moonraker by releasing a jammed docking mechanism. And then obviously the section they're in uh, breaks away and and it's sort of, it's hinted at that it, they both die. But later on in the film, it's revealed that they have made it back to Earth when one of the characters in Mission Control says that a tall man and a short blonde woman had been picked up as survivors of the Moonraker, which had broken up obviously over Earth. So Richard Keel talking about uh, Dolly uh, in an interview with Commander Bond. He said that in the first scripts, Jaws was going to have a, a six foot girlfriend. And then this was changed to an actor, who a seven foot five woman who was going to play the part of Dolly. And he said, although this might have been a good for a quick joke, I felt that it detracted from the natural motivation I would have in protecting a girlfriend as a woman that big would hardly need protecting. So obviously the idea of Dolly was very different in the early stages. And they looked at a few alternatives after Richard Kill sort of complained that it wasn't right for his character, but they couldn't really land on the right person. And in the end, uh, Lewis Gilbert um, told Richard and his wife Diane to go see a French comedy that was in the cinemas called La Carapette um, because there was an actress in it who they thought would be good for Dolly. And he said, Richard Kill said, I was impressed as his comedy, the short actress plays a farmer's wife who's having an affair and she's very pretty and very well built. Although the film was entirely in French, it was very visual extremely funny and Diane and I enjoyed it so yeah so they sort of um changed their plans and hired Blanche Rovalek instead uh, what do you guys think of Dolly pretty ridiculous yeah I think it's about as it's it's about as cartoony as as Bond gets I think yeah I mean it's it's peak Roger Moore isn't it yeah that's that's probably one of the like five scenes that you put down as being that is would only ever happen to Roger Moore yeah Interestingly, you were not the only ones that didn't like Dolly. So uh, the screenwriter, Christopher Wood, who, who wrote Moonraker, as well as The Spy Who Loved Me, who, who worked on those both those films. Christopher Wood, in an interview later, said, Dolly was not my idea and I hated her. I also felt that Jaws, alas, had totally sacrificed credibility as a figure of menace. Something that started happening in Spy, talking about Spy Who Loved Me. And then in another interview, he said, in Spy, Jaws was meant to be scary and Keel's playing persuaded Lewis Gilbert to exploit his menace for laughs. We just about got away with it in Spy, not as far as I'm concerned, in Moonraker. His petite love interest made me squirm. And then in another interview later on, Christopher Wood, I mean, he really wants to stick the boot in. He said, the whole business of turning Jaws into a lovable moral ape was totally against what I wanted and I fought as hard as I could to stop the love interest with this diminutive little apple strudel with the pigtails, which I find embarrassing and totally diminished any kind of tension in the story. To me, it was just Pukesville. So that's what Christopher Wood thought of um, mm. Dolly. So in the draft, of uh, an early draft of the script, there was actually going to be a line of dialogue between Dolly and Jaws and she would have said, my name is Dolly and Jaws would have said, Gaga, gaga, 
which apparently would have translated as hello dolly and i think having him talk would have been absolutely ridiculous oh, so not only dear god yeah not only did christopher wood not have dolly in his script he also didn't put her in his novelization of the film he just completely left her out which i think obviously was his um mm, yeah, yeah was his uh well if he if he didn't want to include her, then he shouldn't didn't have to. So uh, yeah, um, but yeah, talking about Blanche Ravalek, she was born in September 1954. She's an actor and a dubbing artist, and also was an air stewardess for a, a small amount of time as well. So she became interested in comedy at school, but she was 22 before she took theatre lessons to develop her talent. Um, she worked for several years, like I said, as an air hostess before making her film debut in 1978 as Ivelin in a French comedy called Le Hotel de la Plage. Uh, she had a few more roles in a few more films, including the one that uh, you know caught uh, Louis Gilbert's eye before making Moonraker in 1979. So then, be- beyond Bond, she's made tons of appearances in French language TV and film, and she's very famous for uh, her French translation dubbings. Some of the stuff that she's done is Ugly Betty, Friends. And Desperate Housewives. And apparently she also provides voices for the French dub of Tom's the Tank Engine and Friends. So there you have it. Dolly. But that is not all there is to say about the character of Dolly, I understand. No, and this is probably the most interesting part of the character of Dolly. And it's a fascinating rabbit hole that I found myself whirling down. So just going to ask you two, nice simple question. Did Dolly wear braces in Moonraker? Humor, well, humor me I, here. I, I, I would have said yes, but I checked it last week. So right, no, but well, you would have said yes. And that's the key. Yeah, I went. To, we went to see it at the cinema a few years ago, and I think I was expecting when she smiled her to have braces because I thought that mm. was the punchline to Jaws having metal teeth. But it's not. She doesn't have braces. No. So this is something known as a Mandela effect, and it's named by a paranormal consultant called Fiona Broom. And she discovered that many people believed Nelson Mandela died in prison in the 80s rather than being freed. And there's there's a number of examples. The Tiananmen Square protester being run over by a tank. That didn't happen. And the quote, Darth Vader quote, Luke, I am your father. He didn't say that. So this, but this, this one is one that, um, the Dolly's braces is one that really, it's fascinating because people really are passionate about this one in, in, in a massive way. Forums are full of people disputing it. And I had a VHS copy that had her with braces in. Why have they got it? They've remastered it. They've deleted the braces. So the scene where they, where they meet and she, she lifts the, the wheel off of him and frees him. The music plays. He smiles. And like you said, Tom, when she opens her mouth, your brain's filling in that joke, isn't it? It's, it's doing the punchline for you. You think, oh, right, okay, she's going to have something. And and that's one of the reasons to this existing. That's one of the theories why it exists. But I find myself, every time I, I read about it, my brain reverts back to thinking she has braces every time. And I went, I, I dug out the Blu-ray of Moonraker today just to check. <laughs> Ridiculous. Because I know, I know that she's not wearing braces. It's, it's all over the internet she doesn't wear braces. It's slightly less in the film for me. <laughs> <laughs> and mi6 they did a, the website they did a, a poll and 47 percent 
chose braces when asked what factor first attracts Jaws to Dolly in Moonraker at first sight. 47%, it's nearly nearly half, are convinced that she wears braces. And it's all through the internet. BBC cider is wearing braces in, in articles about the character. So it's it's pretty rife. And there's a few explanations of why, why this might come about. There's a clip on YouTube where in the v- one of the VHS versions, there's like a flash of light where her teeth are and your eyes can play tricks on you. Also, it's a stereotype. You know, she's got the, the glasses, the pigtails and a geeky girl. You know, if you were to, the stereotype, you'd throw in braces as well as a, as a classic. The sun reflecting from her glasses apparently could cause that illusion where you think that she's got she's got braces. However, in an email to Laurent Perrault, Blanche actually messaged saying, Hello, Laurent. I'm in the studio. No, Dolly never had braces. It was never even a question. Happy holidays. Kisses, Blanche. So <laughs> we can prob- we can probably put that to bed, right? That's that's directly from, from her. I would have said if, so, yeah. I, I'm willing to put it to bed. I, I don't want angry emails, though. <laughs> I'm worried. I'm genuinely worried about this one. I, I really want a load of angry emails <laughs> saying she definitely had braces. <laughs> It just, it doesn't make any sense for them to, why would they restore it and delete the braces? I just, I don't, I, I just don't understand why they would do that. I, I read somewhere that... I'd love it if they, I'd love it if they did. They should do, the braces cut. Um, <laughs> I read somewhere that there was possibly an advert at the time, which had a similar sort of actor who did smile and did reveal having braces. Right, and so possibly... it was a Finnish, yeah, it was a Finnish advert with Richard Keel in it. And oh really? Yeah, and he has he has a conversation with the checkout girl. And they they get talking, and then when he walks away, she smiles and she has braces. So Richard Keel was in an advert. Yeah. Right. What what any other good Mandela effects that you found? I mean the the classic the one of ones I found were the classic ones, the Tiananmen Square and Luke, I'm your father. But um... beat me up, Scotty. Beam me up, Scotty. That's another one. Yeah. But there is there's like a, a whole society of Mandela effect people. Um, and it's, it is fascinating. There's also a, a, a weird one at my primary school where they said that Buzz Aldrin once came in and did his talk at our school, but I'm pretty sure, pretty certain he didn't. That's the same sort of I, thing. I'm right? pretty certain he didn't as well. <laughs> but yeah, Dolly's braces. What a crazy, weird story. Yeah. And, mm. and if you, if you're interested in further of that, there's, plenty of videos there's plenty of rabbit holes to go down um but just don't do what i did and start convincing yourself that she she does wear braces well please email in let us know if uh, <laughs> dolly has braces <laughs> oh. okay so on to a little bit more of a higher profile bond character now and one that is significantly more how should i say it better as part of the Bond series than Dolly and her braces. So D is for Domino. Now, Domino is the main Bond woman, Bond lady in Thunderball. And I'd probably go as far as to say the best Bond, certainly from my perspective, the best Bond girl that has ever existed. Not only because she's a very attractive woman and she's a very good actor, but also because of the role that she plays within the Bond series. I'll go a bit 
more depth into that in, in a bit. But Domino plays the sort of kept woman who uh, is kind of um, Largo's mistress in Thunderball. And she she's, she's a mistress of Largo, but then she finds out later on that um, Largo is a baddie and then joins forces with Bond, as the Bond girls normally do, who last until the end of the film. But Domino has actually got a bit more depth to her character and a bit more depth to the story than a lot of the um, the story arcs for the Bond girls. Um, but going, going back to Domino's sort of history, she exists in the Thunderball novel written by Ian Fleming. She's known as Do- Dominetta Vitali in the novel of Thunderball. Surprisingly, she's her character and what she does in the book is actually very close to the character that she plays uh, in the film, except for a few changes. And also, of course, there's a domino that exists in Never Say Never Again as well. Uh, and she's got a different name, uh, which I'll get into a bit. Domino is played by uh, Claudine Auger, uh, who is a French actress. The original Domino, Vitali is Italian in the Fleming book, but they were so impressed with Claudine Auger that they decided to rename the character to Domino Duval to match the fact that she's French and write her in as a French character into the into the film, which I thought was interesting. Luciana Paluzzi originally auditioned for the role of Domino, obviously didn't get the role of Domino and became Volpe. Fiona, Fiona Volpe. Fiona Volpe, that's it. Her role in the story is quite a detailed one because it's her brother who is, well, his, his plane's destroyed. He works for, I think it's NATO. Yeah, he's um, an Air Force pilot for NATO. And Largo kills him because the plane he's flying holds the nuclear warheads that he wants to take to plan a nuclear holocaust by using the weapons. So she doesn't know this earlier on in the film, up until a point where Bond actually tells her that's the case when he finds out that Largo did indeed kill her. And at this point, she becomes an ally of Bond and helps him to take Largo down. But she does it in a way that is quite... I mean, she is the one that takes Largo down. She She's the one that eventually kills him. But she Bond couldn't couldn't do any of it without her because she acts as a sort of spy on the Disco Volante, uh, which is Largo's ship, and basically just feeds Largo to him to the point where eventually she takes him down. And it's a really... She's a really good character. And throughout throughout that, that whole film, she has this sort of depth to her that you can kind of see, and you don't get this with... I don't think any Bond girl does it as, as good as Claudia Nauga does in Thunderball, in that you feel she's actually it's quite a complex situation. She's in she's not she's not happy. She's she's in a really bad like scenario. In the book, it goes into a bit more depth into why why that is. And it talks it talks about her being she's an Italian beauty from Balzano. Um she went to school in uh, England at Cheltenham Ladies College. She studied acting at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. And then she was forced by her parents to return to Italy where she became an actress. And it's at that point where she changes her name to uh, Vitali and she becomes a mistress of Emilio Largo, who she calls a guardian of no relation. And there's a lot of kind of dark, dark scenes. It's kind of a laid to in film that um, when Largo finds out that she's double crossing him, that he tortures her. But in the book, it's a lot more graphic than that. And he really does go to town on her. Um, with like cigars and ice and all this kind of stuff. In the book, she explains to Bond that she is trapped like a bird in a gilded cage quite early on. So you get this feeling in the book that she is 
she knows about the situation that she's in and she wants to get out of it. Whereas in the film, it's a little bit dumbed down than that. It's not until she finds out that Largo killed her brother that she becomes a proper ally of Bond. Then also Domino turns up in Never Say No Again, which is the remake of, of Thunderball. And it's played by Kim Bassinger. And the character's name in that is Dominita Patashi. Um, I'm not going to go too much into death in the the role that Kim Bassinger plays in, in that film, but the story is slightly different in Never Say Never Again, including the ending where the um, the killing of Largo actually happens underwater. So yeah, so she took lessons, uh, Claudia Naga took lessons to perfect her English for the role, but she was eventually dubbed by an, an actor called Nikki van der Zyl. She was in a, a semi-nude Playboy spread. Thunderball launched her career quite successfully in Europe, but she never really made it as sort of a big screen actor in the uh, in the US. She did, however, star in a TV special called The Road to Lebanon, uh, which also starred Bing Crosby. She co-starred with Ursula Andrus in an Italian comedy called Anyone Can Play. She starred with both Barbara Boucher and Barbara Back uh, in Black Belly of the Tarantula, which is a, a giallo mystery, which is like an Italian horror series. They made loads of them. She had roles in some European films, such as Triple Cross, which was a film directed by Terence Young, um, Thunderball. And she appeared quite later on in the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes in The Three Gables, which is a British television series at the time. I've got another bit of an excerpt from John Cork, as always, because he sums it up quite nicely. He says, the role of women in the Bond movies constantly evolves. Despite the attitude of the era, Fleming wrote complex characters. Many times for the women, that complexity was overshadowed by the sexuality. Most viewers remember Honey Rider walking from the sea, but don't talk about her tailor being raped and murdering her rapist. Tatiana in From Rushery of Love is sexually exploited by Spectre. Domino in Thunderball has sold her soul for the access to luxury and security that Largo provides. And the underlying sadness in her character certainly enriches the film for me. And I think that sums up Domino in Thunderball really well because she does have that sort of sadness in her character. It works really, really well. And you don't get that from Honey Rider and you don't get that quite as much from um, Tatiana, I don't think. You you can see Domino's character. Is, she is in a, a quite a complex emotional state throughout the whole film. She's brilliant. She's wonderful to look at and she's plays a, a great role but she certainly has a lot more depth to, for, for, for me than, than pretty much all of the the uh, other bond actors that have um have played in the films what what do you think to to domino she's great yeah i think she's fantastic for all those reasons that you said the way you spoke about her in the book it sounds a lot like uh, lupe from license to kill that sort of uh damaged yeah. abused mistress which um Obviously, probably wasn't possible in 1965 when this film was made. But um, yeah, she's um, you're right. She is fantastic. She's very like, interesting to to look at. Sort of iconic look as well. And yeah, yeah. I think she works really well with Connery as well. She plays a- against him really nicely. The, the, the like two way conversations they have, the quips and stuff. I don't think I've ever seen another Bond girl have such a brilliant kind of response to the things that he's saying in such a clear, succinct and and humorous way and normally it can be a bit cheap and normally it's a bit simple and normally connery just gets the good lines but she gets some really good lines in that in that film for me i'm not really a huge fan of thunderball but she's definitely one of the strong points in it um she, she makes it watchable for me personally good well that is domino in thunderball and a bit of never say never again oh by the way before we get any emails in 
it's Claudine Auger. Just, uh, like, just, uh, just in case. Any French listeners? Yeah, apologies. For any that. French listeners? Uh, yeah. Sorry, sorry for Wheatley is uh, and his pronunciation. Brendan's just quite pleased that for once, it's not him <laughs> making the mistakes that couldn't get the emails. <laughs> D is for Doran, Lindsay Doran. Uh, now, Lindsay Doran is a, a film American film producer, studio executive, and a longtime collaborator with Emma Thompson. Her connection to the James Bond film uh, series is that in 1996, Doran became the president and CEO of United Artists, the uh, the production the, the the studio behind the Bond films at that time. She took over from John Kelly, a name that we have mentioned many times on this podcast. Uh, he left uh, United Artists to go to Sony. And while she was at uh, United Artists, she oversaw Bond 18 and 19, Tomorrow Never Dies and The World Is Not Enough. And other films she worked on there include Ronin and The Thomas Crown Affair, the remake. It was an interesting time for her to become the head of a studio because at the time uh, there were were very, very few female studio executives. And obviously working with Barbara Broccoli must have been a great, I mean, for Barbara Broccoli especially, it must have been a great relief to have someone at a studio who was also a woman. So in an interview uh, that's quoted in the book, Some Kind of Hero, it said, this is a quote from Lindsay, it said, Barbara was probably happy to have a woman in charge, but she is like the child of a mother who has had 12 husbands. Every time a new husband comes in, she thinks, okay, I'm going to be nice to you for a while, but you won't be here in three years, so I'm not going to take it all that seriously. I couldn't blame her for that attitude. Eon had been through so many studio heads by that point. So she's joining United Artists at a very interesting time. She, her history is that she was born into the film industry, basically. In an interview with HuffPost a few years ago, she said, I was born very late in my father's life. He was 55 He was a studio executive for nearly 50 years working on films like Sunset Boulevard and my mother typed scripts for Preston Sturgis. My brother was the publicist on 2001 A Space Odyssey. So she comes from Hollywood royalty, basically. In 1967, she attended Barnard College, which is an all-women liberal arts college in New York. She studied English literature, but then left to go to the University of California in LA and then While she was there, she then transferred to the University of California, Santa Cruz, where she took uh, courses in dance, art history, music and architecture. But when she graduated, she moved to London in 1971. So talking about her experience in London, she thought she said, I thought I wanted to live there forever, but I couldn't get a visa. I did some writing for film encyclopedias. I had a flat with no heat in Earl's Court and a lot of free time. So I spent most of it in the Brompton Road Library. I'd pick an author and read everything. So that was sort of her route into the film industry. She basically, she went from, from there, from London to, to writing. Uh, she did seven years with public television, first as secretary, then later as a producer and writer. Um, and she said she found her skills for writing for public television were completely useless. Um, and that's when she started to work her way up, basically. She worked at the Screen Actors Guild. Um, when she was 30, she became an executive at the uh, at Embassy. And there she worked on a number of films, including Spinal Tap and The Sure Thing. And then in 1985, she became the VP of production for Paramount in L.A. Um, and while she was there, she was supervising sort of five films at a time. And some of the films that she oversaw the development of, you'll like this weekly, include... Ghost, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, The Naked Gun, Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, among many others. And in 1990, 
1991, she developed the script for the Emma Thompson film Dead Again, and that would be the start of her relationship with Emma Thompson, which lasted for over 20 years. I think they're still working together now. But yeah, so she basically worked her way up from there. She did win an Oscar later on in her career for Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, Sorry, um, Emma Thompson won Best Adapted Screenplay for The Sense and Sensibility that they made together again. But yeah, so taking it back to Bond, she, like I said, she joined United Artists before um, and worked on Tomorrow Never Dies. That was her first uh, James Bond film that she worked on. And it was just before Tomorrow Never Dies uh, hit cinemas that John Kelly, who had left United Artists to go to Sony, announced his plans for a Bond film series at Sony because of Strike the uh, Klaxon, the situation with Kevin McClory. So he announced this at the very same time that MGM United Artists had been preparing to do a $250 million public stock offering. Um, and Credit Leonese were prepped to sell the company. This was all the stuff that had been going on for many, many years. Uh, talking about John Kelly's move to announce the Bond series as all this stuff was going on at United Artist, Duran called it an impish act and said that John Kelly just loved creating mischief and it was a violent act towards MGM. And that's something, you know, Kelly denies, but, you know, business is business. So one of the boldest acts of Duran. Uh, Lindsay Doran at this time was to release Tomorrow Never Dies against Titanic which obviously as we all know now went on to become the highest grossing film of all time but at the, at the time it was being released there was a lot of question marks over it whether or not it was going to be any good there'd been a lot of drama behind the scenes on that one so going up against Titanic was a gamble that unfortunately didn't pay off so talking about it, Duran said it was very, very scary. If your mandate is don't screw up the Bond franchise and the first James Bond movie you make is overwhelmed by another movie, that's terrifying. We won Friday night. Saturday night, it was clear that Titanic was going to be a problem. By Sunday night, it seemed like it was going to be a big problem. So the, we all know what happened with that. You know, Titanic went on to be the biggest box office film of all time. So following that launch um, and that release, United Artists was was shuttered and everything was then moved under the MGM brand. And Doran said that that was uh, a move that she wasn't very happy with. Uh, another interesting decision that Doran oversaw while she was at MGM and United Artists was that she oversaw the acquisition for the worldwide distribution rights for Never Say Never Again from a company called Talia Film. So that deal closed in 1997. So in a press release for that, Doran said, we have taken this definitive action to underscore the point that the Bond franchise has one and only home with the collective family of United Artists, MGM and Danjak. We want to make it undeniably clear to any and all encroachers that MGM will do everything to protect what has been established over 35 years to be the most valuable film franchise in history. So I guess this was her way, or at least United Artists' way, of hitting back at John Kelly and his plans for his own Bond franchise. I think it was sort of bringing that one in-house, sort of strengthen their position. So interestingly, the next film, The World Is Not Enough obviously ended up being probably the most female-friendly Bond film in the series. So you've got a head of studio who's a, a female. Uh, you've got the the, the studio, um, Barbara Broccoli, at the, at the company, and she's also a lady. So interesting that that film ended up being the most um, female-friendly Bond film that had been released. So, yeah, that's it for Lindsay Doran. She... 
she like I said, she went on to have a great career. She's still working today. There's uh, lots of stuff out there. She's not a studio executive any, anymore, but she worked with Emma Thompson on the film Nanny McPhee and the sequel to that. Yeah, the sequel which came in 2010. But yeah, that's uh, Lindsay Doran. D is for Dowdle, Jim Dowdle, born in October 1948 in London. He is a English, he's an English stunt coordinator, stunt performer and an actor uh, with well over 40 years of experience. And he is prolific. He has appeared in and worked on nearly 200 films and TV shows. And it's astonishing. And I'd like to also thank him for having his own website. It makes stuff like this a lot easier because you can, you can, it's verified by the man himself. So in terms of his career, he started in the circus working as a lion trainer. Wow. Um, where he would put his head inside a lion's mouth at the age of 16. He'd just left school and that was his first job, which is incredible. Beats, beats a paper round. <laughs> yeah, working slightly a coal more risky. Factory. <laughs> <laughs> also as an acrobat as well, that was part of the, the circus training. He also did... A variety of other jobs. He was um, a mechanic on motorcycles. He delivered cars. But he entered the film business as an armourer. And an armourer is somebody who supervises the use of all weapons on a film set and provides instruction so that the actors know how to use them correctly and safely uh, while on set. And so his, his first film was The Dirty Dozen. And he said, my first film was The Dirty Dozen. I didn't know shit from toothpaste. And I thought that was a nice quote. Uh, to lead him in with in his career um he also was an armorer on where eagles dare as well so he had a spell in the parachute regiment in the early 1970s but it ended when he he had a bad jump and it caused vertebrae damage which makes the rest of his career even more remarkable to be honest so he recovered and he started w- working as an extra supporting artist and also as an ad he finally entered the stunt business and so he's an all-round stunt performer, and he would include it included medieval jousting in the USA. So he had a stint wow. out there doing that. But he has worked on nine Bonds, Superman films, Star Wars films, Indiana Jones films, Batman films, Saving Private Ryan, Harry Potter, Doctor Who. He he's he's done it all. If it, chances are, if you've you've got a you know a favorite film in your top ten, and there's stunts in it. He's he's involved in at least one. There's a very good chance. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> Is that in your top ten? It might be. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of his James Bond filmography, you've got The Spy Love Me, For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, where he doubles for Roger Moore when in the train scene. You know, he's running across the train. Yeah. And so there's a great picture of him dressed as Roger Moore's Bond on top of a train. Um, that's a, a good picture. Uh, Never Say Never Again, The Living Daylights, Golden Eye, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, where he drives the car on the ice, which we wow. covered in the Die Another Day episode, saying how, how great that the chase is. Uh, and also Skyfall in 2012. And Casino Royale 1967 as an armourer early on in his career. There's so, a lot of weapons in so, that film. <laughs> Remarkably, he has worked with all the Bonds apart from Lazenby. That's incredible. Spanning, mm. spanning 
what's that, six decades, five decades. So he says about the Bond films, we had a lot of fun. In those days on set, when you were on a Bond movie, it was like a family. We'd all get together every 18 months or two years and do another film, and everybody knew each other. People who work on them today tell me it's very different. We used to fuck about on the Bonds, but as long as you pulled it out of the hat when the cameras were rolling, that was what mattered. There was a joy in the filmmaking we did. I guess that's that's what you, as long as you get that shot, everything else, you can do what you want, right? So he's doubled for Harrison Ford, Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan, Timothy Dalton, and loads of others in his well-established career. Um, Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> no, not, Dan- not Daniel Radcliffe. Um, <laughs> Wasn't he... Isn't Octopussy the one where Roger Moore's stunt double's got ginger hair? I was going to say that. I That was something we always used to laugh about, wasn't it? That on the train, it looks like yeah. Bond's got ginger <laughs> that- hair. That's the wig, though, isn't it? That's that's nothing to do with the the actor. Uh, that's just like in in View to a Kill, the guy driving half a car. It's a ginger orange wig, isn't it? <laughs> you thought after the amount of time and money Roger spent on his hair, they might have spent a bit more time and money on his wigs as well, his stunt doubles oh, wigs. Oh, they could have just took his off, couldn't they? <laughs> oh, oh, nice. oh. Was... he's not. It's not Connery. You'll get complaints <laughs> about that. Yeah, bring it. Uh, put it in the same one as the, uh, says that the do- Dolly's braces. Stick it all in yeah. one. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he was early on friends with Pierce Brosnan. So in, in terms of Goldeneye, you'll recognise him because he said, I knew him from drama school and we are chums. When he did Goldeneye, in the opening sequence, you see Pierce dropping through the roof of a Russian facility while a Russian is sitting on the Kazi. That's a toilet for anybody who's... Uh, not from the UK or London. <laughs> Reading a paper with his trousers round his ankle, Pierce said, I know I want to be on the Kazi. So that's him. When he, uh, that's Jim when... Dowdle, wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, great. Uh, he's also a big collector of World War II military vehicles and motorcycles. He's got a really deep knowledge of the cars, trucks, tanks and motorcycles used in terms of relation to GoldenEye, he was part of the tank chase, orchestrating that. So that knowledge of military vehicles and, and tanks and has, has led him to get roles on historical films such as The Pianist, Enemy at the Gates, Saving Private Ryan. So he's also got a huge list of experience with helicopters and fixed wings, so aircraft. So he really does, he cover covers a lot of stunts and his knowledge is wide which means he's a valuable asset to have so he drives a high-speed pursuit arm american stabilized camera system which enables people to get high-speed shots of cars especially in adverts it's it's used but that's what he did in skyfall as well and he's he's done over 450 commercials as well on top of the 200 tv and film Uh, he's worked on top gear as well and the grand tour so a lot of those stunts that you see he is coordinating that. And he has got, he's got three things. He's got like a three a code, a special three rules to best action for a stunt sequence. And this is on his website, which is uh, jimstunt.com, by the way. So I, I recommend you to have a look. He's got a couple of videos of his work. It's all, all very good. So number one, a mutual understanding of the director's requirement and vision for the sequence. Number two, if budgetary constraints diminish the original concept, the coordinator should be able to suggest an alternative slash cheaper method of portraying the same storyline. And number three, 
employing the best performers for the job combined with the safety requirements to protect all those performers and the rest of the crew to ensure everyone goes home safely on wrap. Safety with spectacle. There's a number of interviews as well with him. He seems like a right character and he's willing to talk about it as well, about his, his career, because he's worked with some amazing people. And he said, I did a film called Entrapment with Sean Connery. I had enormous respect for him. I found him to be very professional and nice. So, yep, yeah, he's worked with Connery a couple of times. So in terms of the, any injuries that he's got, he said, I fractured my skull twice, broke my nose twice, cut my finger off in a crash, had an arrow through my leg. Some oh seemingly st- small stunts have the biggest danger, as moving a quarter of an inch could cause serious injury. I had to fall back into a coffin once, and if I'd made the slightest wrong move, like stood in my tiptoes as I fell into it, I'd have taken the top of my head off. God. But I, I'd do it all again, because I've seen ice caps, deserts, and jungles. I've met the most amazing people, and I've had the most incredible fun. Absolutely fantastic. He's still working to this day. He worked on Tenet. That's the most recent that's on his IMDb. And there's a documentary on BritBox called Hollywood Bulldogs. The Rise and Falls of the Great British Stuntman. Have you seen this, either of you? No, I'm aware of it, though. Yeah, I've seen adverts for it, but I'm definitely going to check it out because it seems to be very... It's it's about an hour and a half long, I think, documentary, and it seems to be very candid. And it covers... Wheatley, you would love this because it's it's like 70s, 80s. It's sold. I'll watch it tonight. Yeah, it, it just... It looks great. As I said, there's his website if you want to check him out as well, jimstunt.com. And also, he released a book called Man on Fire, The Life and Other Accidents of Jim Dowdle. Uh, that came out in October 2019, cool. and it's on Kindle Unlimited, if you've got that. So, mm. uh, check that out. But yeah, fascinating man. And uh, what a career. Jim Dowdle, yeah, what a legend. Mm. Time for another big one. D is for Draco, Mark Ange Draco. Uh, you'll know Mark Ange Draco as the character who plays Teresa's dad in On a Magic Secret Service. Uh, pretty important character because not only is he a integral part of that plot, he's the only character in a Bond film to be James Bond's father-in-law. Yes. Which um, is a strange position to be in but it certainly makes for an interesting dynamic um with him and uh Lazenby. he plays the role uh, of the uh, head of a crime syndicate not spectre but one that's equally as powerful as well as being the father of uh, tracy he's a really interesting character because he's a morally ambiguous character and that pretty much sums him up nicely because he's one of these characters that appears in the bond films who is technically a baddie he's He's doing illegal stuff. He's probably doing stuff that's probably not very nice, but he's a he's an ally of Bond. And there's a few other characters like this. They're not probably the same level as him, but you've got people like Columbo in For Your Eyes Only yeah. and Zukovsky, who who play these roles of allies of Bond, but he knows that they're baddies as well. He, they could equally be the baddies of the film that he's going up against, but he uses them as allies against the... The, the, the you know better the devil you know so he kind of um, joins forces with them yeah it's cut of this uh, honor among thieves type theme isn't it exactly yeah. yeah and they're always a bit ambiguous because you don't know how bad the stuff it always looks like you know blowfell's trying to destroy the world and they're just doing a little bit of smuggling but 
that's not actually true in a lot of the cases. I think in the book for um, Unimagined Secret Service, he's probably he's probably a little bit darker than than what he's like in the in the in the film. He's he's played by uh, Gabriel Fazzetti, who's an Italian actor, who plays the role quite humorously. Actually, he's quite a nice, likable character, very much like Columbo in For Your Eyes Only. And the story is you've got the in For Your Eyes Only, Columbo plays a sort of ally who's also technically a bit of a baddie. But in Unimagined Secret Service, the the story intertwines so closely with the Tracy relationship that it becomes quite complex and quite interesting. Possibly why you like that film and story so much, Butler, because of this sort of relationship that he has with that family. Yeah, it's uh, um, adds a weird, uh, good dimension to it, I think, for sure. It certainly has a lot of depth to it. And the so the the book for Unimagined Secret Service is quite close to the to the film. But the book does give a little bit more information about the backgrounds of some of the characters. And Draco was a fugitive hiding in the mountains of Corsica. And he met his wife, who was an English romantic who was looking for bandits. And they fell in love and married and they had a child who, who was Teresa. Is it Teresa? Yeah, but she's known as Tracy. His wife dies not too long after Teresa... Uh, well, she was 12 years old when um, uh, Draco's wife died. So he brings up Teresa or Tracy as sort of a single dad and he sends her to boarding school in Switzerland she's a little bit of a live wire has a bit of a a tough life he has trouble sort of controlling her and making her live within the confines of what he he wants her to do and keeping her safe there's various storylines behind what she did she married a, a a gentleman who um, died alongside one of his mistresses and eventually Bond comes along and he he basically comes to into the the life of the the, the Dracos as a spy, and he's got no interest in Tracy at all. But she has an interest in him, and Draco realizes this, and because because he's he's saved the life of Tracy, who was trying to commit suicide, and because of that, he sees him as a sort of a savior for Tracy, and um, he says to him, like, I want you to court my daughter. And he offers him a million pounds to do that. Bond's obviously not that bothered. He's not in it for Tracy at the time. He's, he's, he, and I don't think he's that interested in the money in the storyline. But he does find out that Draco, because of his crime relations, he knows quite a bit about Blofeld. And this is the man that he's after. So he sees this as a way in to get the information he wants to then find Blofeld. But even though... He gets this information off of Draco. He actually falls in love with Tracy. And then this whole storyline comes into play where he works with Draco in order to get hold of Blofeld. Towards the end of the, the story, it's Draco who basically offers his services as sort of a surrogate MI6 because during the storyline of Unimagined Secret Service, Bond doesn't have MI6 helping him get Blofeld. So Draco's crime syndicate becomes his sort of MI6 and gives him the support he needs to go to Piz Gloria and um, and get Blofeld and they blow it up and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, so Draco becomes quite an integral character in that storyline and it's all interwoven with the Tracy storyline as well. And obviously he's a father-in-law. So it's quite a, quite a complex and interesting relationship that they all have within that film. Yeah, especially I think as, he plays it in such a... Yeah, as Bond being an orphan, like, I guess it adds an extra dimension, doesn't it? That he's yeah. never had this father figure. Lot. Yes, yeah. There's a lot of depth to that. I haven't actually read on a Magic Secret Service, and I'd like, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to see. Have you read? You've read it, haven't you, Butler? Yes, yeah, many, uh, many moons ago. But um, I'm getting working my way through them. Yeah. I'll get to it again soon. What about? Hang on. What about Blofe- yes. Blofeld's dad? You know, 
Oh, don't bring Let's that into it. Into that. Let's not go into that. <laughs> don't, don't, che- don't, don't cheapen a good character this, explanation. This is the multiverse, Brendan. That's in another multi. That's in another universe. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, one of the uh, most interesting scenes in in the film is the the wedding scene. Yes. Um, where it's the only time you ever really see Bond have a proper wedding where he's actually interested in the woman that he's marrying. But the most interesting part of that is that you have all of Draco and his crime syndicate along with all of the Secret Service. And there's these nice sort of conversations. He has one with uh, M about uh, their war stories, reminiscing about um, course, yeah. various factors and uh, and the fact that M's the man who's caused him to lose some of his operators in the past. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic and he's really an important character. He's... he's, he's Quite, it's quite a bit above that in that ilk of those sort of anti-heroes allies that Bond's got. He's really at the top of the list. Uh, but a little bit about the actor. So G- Gabriel Fazzetti is an Italian actor who died in 2015. He hasn't done a lot of sort of mainstream Western type films uh, in, in English. Uh, most of his stuff is in Italian. But his first screen role was um, when he was 17. And his first leading role was in the film La Zapator in 1950. I'm going to gloss over some of the Italian films here because I'm only going to mention the ones that I know of. One of his biggest roles was he played Puccini twice. Uh, once in the film Puccini and once in the film Casa Ricordi. Uh, Puccini was a biographical story of Puccini and it was a really big deal at the time. It was um, it was all about you know, his the Madame Butterfly and how it flopped and um, how he never completed Tur- Turando, uh, one of his other uh, musicals. So then Casa Ricordi is about the story of the Ricordi family, which is the, it's a big music publishing family in Italy. And so they, they were a couple of big ones. Casa Ricordi didn't, wasn't anywhere near as famous as, as Puccini was. He made his international breakthrough in Michelangelo Anton- Antonioni's La Ventura as a playboy. And after that, he became a really popular sort of Italian leading man. He was a very suave, debonair, almost like a sort of Cary Grant type type figure for Italian films. It, one of the biggest things he did in uh, the sort of English speaking world was John Huston's biblical epic called The Bible in the Beginning, which starred Peter O'Toole and Richard Harris. And that was a major big deal at the time. I don't know how much you know about the old, in, in like sort of the mid 20th century, the Bible was a, a, a good source of movie stories. Yeah. And this was a big one. It had, uh, it was all about the garden. It was basically the first, the first part of the book of Genesis, all about Noah, the garden of Eden, the Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, all these different things. It was a big deal at the time. Uh, he was also in Once Upon a Time in the West, Sergio Leone's first film as the, as part of the trilogy. Uh, have you ever seen that? Yeah. Fantastic film. I, I did, I'd not seen the sequels. I've, I've seen one of the sequels, but I didn't realise the second one was called Duck You Sucker. But the, the the third one's called Once Upon a Time in America. He's also pretty well known to, in a less mainstream way, uh, for playing Hans in Liliani Cavani's The Night Porter, which is a 1974 film that starred Dirk Bogard. Later in his life, he appeared in a lot of, sort of crime detective films um, in the 1970s. And now he's, he's left uh, his daughter, Anna Fazzetti, who's also a pretty big Italian actress, um, at the moment, uh, but I looked through the films that she's been in, and obviously, I don't know any of them. <laughs> but yes, so Draco, big deal and a, a fantastic part of that film. Probably one of the most integral parts of that uh, on a Master Secret Service, if you ask me. Yeah, one of many interesting parts about that film, definitely. Um, 
Yeah. Well, I guess that wraps it up for this episode. It's uh, a light and breezy episode following some of the uh, longer film specials, but we like that. That concludes the letter D, which means we can plough ahead into the letter E, which Mm. by the looks of it is going to be a very short section (laughs) because there are no James Bond films begin with the letter E. So, yeah, we'll be rattling through E probably in about one week. And then we're on to the letter F, which will bring in some interesting surprises, including Ian Fleming from Russia with Love and obviously Kerry Joji Fukunaga, the director of No Time to Die, along with a bunch of other people as well. So uh, can't wait. to. And for your eyes only. And for your eyes only, of course. Why have I not got for for your eyes only? Yes, of course, for your eyes only. So thank you very much for listening. If you have any uh, feedback or any comments you want to make about this episode, you can email us on podcast at jamesbond a to z dot co dot uk and if you want to find us on social brendan at jamesbond a to z on facebook twitter and instagram thank you very much for listening uh we appreciate all your comments if you are enjoying this uh, obviously leave a good review for us on apple Podcasts. make sure you subscribe make sure you tell all your friends and enemies and henchmen about the james bond a to z podcast we will be back next week and james bond will return in the james bond a to z adios Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingemels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.